Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So, uh, first of all, so thank you for this. We normally think of Jewish learning as a little bit on the fluffy side, um, spirituality, ritual, relationships, and that's all good. But the truth is, a significant part of uh, traditional Jewish learning has been about law, um, particular around, particularly around criminal and civil law. And so there is a lot to explore here. I think we're going to have a good time with this. Uh, the plan is I'm going to take about... 25 minutes, we'll take about 25 minutes, and we'll have about 10 minutes for, for questions and conversation. Um, and um, feel free to, uh, uh, to weigh in at any point, but we want to honor that time. So today's uh, topic of passion crimes is incredibly broad. I mean, we could do a week-long seminar and not scratch the surface. And our time slot, when I told him 25 minutes, he was like, what am I going to do in 25 minutes? And the truth is, it's the same for me also. I'm going to cover a, a lot of ground. And it goes without saying that I have zero expertise in American law whatsoever. I'm not even going to touch it. I'm not even going to try to compare it, really. I'm going to, we'll, we'll, we'll make the bridges and our connections ourselves. I'm also not going to look at the, um, the responsa of thousands of years. I'm going to go back to primary sources, biblical and Talmudic. There's a few post-Talmudic texts we'll look at. But primarily, I'm interested in frameworks and categories. Um, my background is twofold. One, in spending a lot of time studying Choshen Mishpat, which a lot of rabbis don't study usually, but it's the area of law that deals with this uh, civil and criminal law uh, uh, within uh, Jewish thought. And secondly, um, my, my doctoral work is in psychology and epistemology. So I think about the nature of truth, um, uh, sub subjective and, and, and objective truth, and in particular, this issue of, of, of compulsion. Um, so um, to start off, I think the question, because we're not really uh, uh, asking moral questions, we're, we're asking legal questions. Of course, there are some intersections. But particularly, uh, particular, um, uh, the, the issue of free will. Um, famously, we know that the three strongest cases against free will were made by Jews, right? Karl Marx, who said we're, we are um, uh, most influenced by our socioeconomic status, Right? And uh, Freud, who said we're most influenced by our early childhood experiences. And Spinoza, who said it's our inner disposition, essentially our genes. We know all three of those are, tr are true. Our genetic dis uh, disposition, our socioeconomic status, and certainly our early childhood experiences are huge factors in who we are. And yet, Jewish thought continues to say there is responsibility and there is free will, even given all of those, even given all of those factors. And where is the gray area? where one is completely not responsible and one is completely responsible? And what is the area where there will be mitigating factors in regards to punishment and responsibility based upon those crimes? Now, one of the interesting categories, looking at er early Talmudic rabbis, is the category of the shoteh. Anyone know who the shoteh is? The shoteh 
is the mentally ill. Right? Now, the mentally ill is not someone of a lower intellectual capacity. Right? We're not dealing with some, a category like a Down syndrome or something like this. They're dealing with schizophrenia and paranoia, right? or someone who has delusions or the like. And the shoteh in Jewish law is completely exempt from, um, from crimes. Completely exempt. And is not even a legal agent, um, considered a legal agent. That, and that's very interesting. That pre-modernity, I mean, we're talking 1,500 years ago and more, the category of the shoteh is someone who is um, off the hook. Now, who falls into that today is an interesting question. Now, the other thing that's interesting, we have also the category of shogeg versus mezid. Shogeg means something that's done unintentionally versus mezid, something that's done intentionally. Intentionality is an issue we'll, we'll circle back around to for sure. Um, now, what's interesting is a lot of the laws around punishments that we read in the Bible, in the Torah itself, um, are kind of done away with by the rabbis for various reasons. What's the most typical uh, punishment that's done away with? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Say it again. You're stoning your son. Oh, yeah. So that's a big one. We could do a whole, a whole class on this issue of stoning one's son. Um, actually, you know what that case is really about? If one's child takes their parents' money and spends it on excessive meat and, and alcohol without the parents' permission, that child should be stoned because they, they, are, they, are, they are irredeemable. They're irredeemable. Okay, so, so it's called the sora umora. So, so bracketing that category, yes, stoning as one of them, but essentially the death penalty, right? If you read the Bible itself, you would think death penalty is permitted, right? And, and the rabbis basically make it impossible. What's the primary mechanism that they make it impossible? It's called hatra'ah. Hatra'ah means giving a warning. That means there need to be two witnesses at the moment of the crime who say, um, clarify your name, clarify the act you're about to do, and clarify that you understand the full consequences and the weight of the weight, the weight of the action you're about to do. And if they confirm in front of these two witnesses, I know what I'm about to do, and I know the consequences, and they do all these things, then they can be put to death, which is you know, virtually impossible. Now, um, there's an interesting discussion, a lot of literature on Kabbalah Tatra'ah. What, what constitutes as is Kamblahatra, accepting the, the warning, accepting the warning that one is giving. And actually, an interesting question in American law, um, would a crime of passion be, di be, be different if one had a warning at that moment? For example, one walks in, the classic case, right, and they see their spouse is cheating on them, and in that state of rage, kill the two of them, right? Um, and now the mitigating factor that this is rage, it's not premeditated and, and everything else. Now, what if there was a, a, third per, a third person in the room, a fourth person in the room, who said, I want you to know that you're about to kill your spouse and, and your spouse's lover, and I want you to know the penalty that will come. You know, would, would in that state of rage, a warning actually um, you know, play, have any weight at all also? Okay, now there's another category called ruach stus, ruach stut. Um, which is a state of insanity, essentially. Um, that wrongs done in this state are understood to, uh, differently also um, in this state of insanity. Uh, we, 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 will, we will circle back to that as well. Now, from, from a philosophical category, we might ask, what's the purpose of punishment? What's the purpose of a punishment? Are we, is this primarily a consequentialist ethic where we're trying to... Um, uh, either look at the crime from a consequentialist ethic of how much, uh, yeah, the, the, how much damage was done, or from a deterrence perspective, 
of what will be achieved for the good of the victim, for the good of the perpetrator, for the good of society at large? Is this deontological? We're interested in just desserts and the like. What is actually the goal of what we're doing here? And I think that the, the notion of the mental state of the perpetrator there has a lot of relevance. Is this a person who is likely to commit this crime again? Is this a person of bad character, right? Or is this a person who, in a particular state, um, may have done something horrible, and are we punishing the consequence again? Or punishing the character? Is this, are, are we bringing in virtue ethics to some degree here as well? Okay, so let's jump into the sources. Everyone have uh, the sources? By the way, yeah, you want, you, do you remember this famous Phoenix case? I only just recently learned about this in my research. Um, there's a book called The Death of a, of a Jewish American Princess. Does everyone know about this? Everyone knows about this. No, no, everyone doesn't know about this. So, uh, The Death of a Jewish American Princess, colon, The True Story of a Victim. So this actually, sadly, is a Phoenix case about a Jewish couple. <laughs> and um, a, a man, Steven Steinberg, here in the community, who's well-known in the community, apparently, killed his wife by stabbing her 26 times. So uh, St Steven Steinberg killed his wife by stabbing her 26 times, and he was acquitted. Why was he acquitted? Because he argued his legal defense portrayed the victim as an overpowering Jewish-American princess <laughs> whose excesses may have provoked her violent end. I mean, is that, is that crazy? If you haven't read this book, it's got to be a fascinating read. People knew this guy in the community. This was in 1982. So, and they, they wrote this murder no novel about this case um, that, that he, he was acquitted because he only killed his wife because, she, because he was overpowered by her being a Jewish-American princess. So anyways, anyways, it's a fascinating case to look at. Okay, let's start with the Toast Vote, uh, our first uh, source here. In the Toast Vote Sanhedrin. This is a medieval commentary on the Talmud. And it says here that perhaps in that case... Rava's statement that a person suspected of sexual immorality remain credible witnesses. The reason is that their inclination overpowers them to the extent that they're considered compelled. Their yetzer, their inclination, means they're overcome by ones. And ones is the key phrase we're going to use this whole session. Ones means they are compelled. There's duress, essentially. Okay? Now, this is a case where, I mean, the, the, in, in American law, this would have, uh, th these details would make no sense, but essentially one who is uh, constantly guilty of these sexual immorality crimes is no longer considered a credible witness. Um, however, um, if they are not a person who ideologically or by conviction engages in such acts, but does it in a moment of temptation, Right? I imagine in divorce law, I mean, I'm just, just totally imagining that one who is sort of, uh, we would never call them a serial adulterer, <laughs> but one who is a consistent adulterer as composed of someone who in a rare moment of temptation finds themselves in a situation would might be a different, might have a different factor. So here there's an ones that the person is compelled. They're not an ideological um, person who engages in these types of, of, of wrongs, but someone who can't control their own temptations. Okay, jump to source two here. The Ur HaChayim, he's an early 18th century Morocco thinker. So we're kind of skipping uh, locations and generations. And he says here on his commentary on numbers, everyone who sins because they are overcome by seduction and desire for pleasure should be judged to some extent as compelled. This is called Sad HaOnes, right? That, again, this is about someone who can't control desire uh, uh, as different uh, from someone who has a particular character or someone who has a particular ideology. Now, something emerges around self-defense. Um, uh, according to Jewish law, if someone comes into one's home um, and one doesn't know their intent, one should assume they are here to cause uh, physical harm, uh, potentially even murder. And thus, there's three positions as to my response. 
Either I must strike down the person entering my home before they strike me down. I'm obligated to strike them down in self-defense. Or I, I don't have to, but I may. Or I should not, but if I do, I'm exempt. Right? It's uh, asur of al patur. It, I, it's forbidden, but I am exempt from any punishment if I do. Okay? So that's a little background around uh, the issue of self-defense. Uh, and it says here in Rav Yosef Bechor Shur, on his commentary on Exodus, if the thief is found in a tunnel, um, this means that one who strikes the thief is not considered a bloodshedder, for he is like one who is compelled. Now, here's the interesting part of this. Of this. For people can, cannot restrain themselves when their money is at stake. Here, the, the issue is that this is not self-defense for my life, but actually I'm concerned about property damage, and I'm so concerned about someone destroying my property in a pre-insurance age that I might do things in response to defending my property that I wouldn't normally do. You ever, you, road rage. You ever, you ever see these viral YouTubes where people jump out of their car and they start, they start fighting in the streets? I mean, maybe they're people who like to fight, but presumably they're also, you know, the, the, there's an issue of road rage, they're concerned about the, their car, and whatever the case is. Okay, let's go to Zvachim, in the Talmudic passage of Zvachim. Ravas, here we're compelled by religion. Rava said, this law I learned from Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, in the laboratory. He learned this in the bathroom. But did not Rabbi Barbar Khanna say in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, one may think about Torah every place except the bathhouse and the lavatory. When he is compelled, it's different. Okay, so what's this about? We can't, we're not allowed to study Torah in the bathroom, right? Because it's an impure place and we, should think, we shouldn't think about you know, something like Torah in the bathroom. But what's the case here? There's someone that they, they can't con control their thoughts. They love learning Torah so much that they can't control that love, or they simply can't control their mind in general. Now, that's an interesting legal question. How much control do we have over thought and over desire as opposed to our actions themselves? Um, so that's kind of a whole different realm. I'm kind of flying through these complex sources. Now we go to Makot. How about revenge? How, how powerful is the motive of revenge? Now, here there's a category called Ir Hamiklat in the Bible. Ir Hamiklat is the city of refuge. The city of refuge primarily is a case, for, let me give an example, where there's unintentional murder, right? One is swinging an ax to hit their tree, and the handle flies off, the blade flies off, and hits someone, and so um, they have committed unintentional murder, and that person now has the right, or maybe obligation, to flee to the city of refuge. For a different session, the city of refuge is a fascinating model for an alternative to mass incarceration. Let's, bra let's bracket that. Um, now, the, here's where the interesting thing emerges. There's a category that emerges called the Goel Hadam. The Goel Hadam is the redeemer of blood. So how did it work in tribal societies? Who's the redeemer of blood? Family. Someone accidentally kills your family member. You don't, you don't wait for the court system to operate this way or that. Family member goes and executes tribal justice, right? So the Goel Hadam emerges. And now, here's where the Machloket emerges, the argument. According to the Tanayim, the early rabbis of the Talmud, I'm using a lot of Hebrew, but I'm translating it, so just for those interested in that. Some say the Goel Hadam is a mitzvah. It's an obligation to redeem the blood of the person who, who committed accidental murder, right? Unintentional murder, excuse me. Um, and some say it's not obligatory, but it's a reshut. It's permitted. It's permitted, okay? Um, and here we're dealing with uh, intentional, uh, a crime that's intentional, but not premeditated, which I think we call second-degree murder, right? 
Um, and so this case of the, of the Goel Hadam is this redeemer of blood, which is a fascinating case. But no one says it's a sur of al patur. It's forbidden to do it, but they're exempt. Essentially, either this is about justice. Yes, you didn't mean it, but you killed them. And, and part of moral life is not, is not merely about not, accident, not intentionally, not just not intentionally committing crimes, but creating a life where you don't accidentally create horrible crimes, the way we drive and the, the way we handle weapons and, 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 and things like this. Um, and so, um, uh, uh, so, so some might say this is about justice. Others might say this is about a passion crime. This is about a person who can't control the fact that their spouse was just killed or their child was just killed. And thus, we have to have some mercy on this person that in, a, in the state of rage, where they go and kill this person who killed their child, um, uh, they will not be punished for that. Um, now, the, now, the Irha Miklat, the city of refuge, the person who accidentally, excuse me, unintentionally commits this crime is, runs as fast as they can to the city of refuge. If they get there, they're safe. Sounds like a board game, right? But if they get there, they're safe, right? Meaning the Goel Adam, the blood redeemer, cannot kill them inside. If they do that, they're a murderer. But as they're running to the, to the city of refuge, on the way, the Goel Adam is permitted or obligated to strike that person down. Okay, is the case clear? Okay, so here it says in Makot, Talmud Makot, Rav Huna said, if the blood avenger finds and kills the accidental homicide on the road to a city of refuge, he is exempt from punishment. He is patur. Okay, now on this we see the Amek Davar, to, uh, uh, comment, uh, the commentary on this. He is 19th century Warsaw, Poland. 19th century Warsaw, his name is Rav Naftali Tzvi Yehuda of Berlin. Fascinating thinker. And he says here, for he did not hate, which is, he's quoting the Bible there. The meaning is that the blood avenger did not previously hate the accidental homicide, but rather his heart heats and brings him to the point of, the point of killing. And he is like the one whose heart compels him. A sim okay, now, okay we'll, we'll pause there. So here he's dealing with, if you already hated the person, the Gola Dam cannot strike him down, the Redeemer of Blood, right? Because that shows there's already, a, there's already hate there. However, if it's a momentary or situational hate that emerges in this case, um, then, it's, then it's different, right? Um, it's not premeditated, uh, and he didn't hate him previously. That's part of the requirement here around this Blood Redeemer. Okay, last two sources. I know we're going quickly. I'm sure there's a lot of questions. Uh, we'll hold those questions till after uh, Mr. Taylor's presentation. And we go to the strength of desire. How strong is, is desire? Erevin 41a. The rabbis taught three things compel people to transgress their own wills and that of their master. Idolaters, evil moods, and the stress of poverty. Right? Um, so idolaters. I don't, know, I don't know. What is idolater? So let's say here, the, um, let's call this religious fanatics. Right? How do we understand a suicide bomber? Right? How do we understand a terrorist? Right? Now, we may understand them simply as a moral category. That's an evil person. That's, why, that's one way people think of a terrorist. That's an evil person. Right? But do we understand a terrorist who's emerging from poverty and religious fanaticism? I'm not in any way justifying, uh, God forbid, justifying any acts of terror. Um, but do we understand that person and their crime differently? Let's say there's a, 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 I was gonna say 12 year old, but being a minor is a whole other category. Let's say there's a, a young adult, um, 18, um, or, or a 20 year old, who has been raised in a religious fanaticism and, and extreme poverty, and engages in an act of terror. Um, should that person be uh, uh, prosecuted, punished in the same way? Um, 
that, um, that someone uh, not raised under those conditions should be punished. So, okay, so that's idolater. Evil moods, here the rabbis are talking about psychology. Uh, uh, evil mood is a little bit of a light translation. And then the stress of poverty. How do we understand financial duress? Let's say there's a millionaire and they go bankrupt. How do we understand someone in a state of losing all of their wealth? So, uh, something they do in that moment of desperation. Um, how do we, yeah. Is there a, a clarifying question? Yes, please. About the idolaters. Yeah. yeah. But I thought under Jewish law, that's one of the three things for which a person must lay down their life uh, if they're asked to do it. Oh, great so, question. So how could, how could it be that, that they would be perceived or interpreted? Okay, great, great. So, so what I, I think what you're proposing is that someone in, in a clear state of mind who has proposed to engage in idolatry should, should die according to Jewish law before engaging in idolatry. However, here we're talking about one who is compelled who is operating within the framework of idolatry. Once they're already, Once they're already an idolater, they are compelled from within their intellectual, spiritual framework of idolatry, right? That they are, they, they are so immersed in their need to serve this statue, to bow to this statue, or in modern notions of idolatry, that they, they idolize money, or they idolize self, or self-image, or whatever the case is. I mean, that's interesting, self-image, right? What about someone who is um, compelled but does a crime because they are, uh, there's a track record of they are completely obsessed with their, with their image or whatever the case is. Okay, so in these cases, they lose free will. Okay, now here's our last text that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand it over here. Um, uh, the Rosh, the, the Rush, the commentary on Moed Katan, another Talmudic passage, says, Rabbi Eli's statement is not legal precedent. Rather, even when a person's inclination overpowers him, he's required to quiet it. For we hold that hakol biyadei shemayim chutz miyiret shemayim. Everything is in the hands of heaven except the fear of heaven. Now that, that line itself we could debate over and over. There's a lot of commentary on that. But the, the, basically the only way we understand it is that yiret shemayim means moral life. A lot of things are outside of the control of humanity. Such things like nature. Um, things like how systems operate beyond human control. Lots of complicated things that one might attribute to God or to nature or to system dynamic. Um, but there is this thing called Yiret Shemayim, uh, fear of heaven, which could be understood here of moral choices. And those are completely in the realm of the human realm. And so even though we are compelled, uh, feel, uh, compulsion or duress based on many factors, um, we are to quiet those desires and those inclinations and uh, to, to gain control. So here I will, I will pause and merely say um, that it is, um, Judaism plays a heavy, places a heavy emphasis on the value of free will and on our free moral choices, but also um, is deeply concerned about punishment, which is not just, and uh, individuals being punished um, who are not of bad character or not likely to commit other crimes, um, but have one-off either accidents or unintentional uh, mistakes or are people who have uh, moments of compulsion of various kinds, or people of mental, uh, 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 mental illness. Uh, again, pre-modernity, 1,500 years ago, the rabbis had this category of the shota, or people who act unintentionally, but shogeg as opposed to bemezid, and are, have to figure out this balance of accountability and the needs of victims, um, but also a just society that also takes into the mental states and the various mitigating factors of the perpetrator herself or himself as well. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution. 
at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Who's walked into the room and the people online who just logged in? I'm Benjamin Taylor. My primary practice is um, criminal defense. And when the, for the next couple of minutes, we're going to talk about mitigation. We just heard about you know, crimes of passion, but what do you do as an attorney if this type of case walks into your office, and what do you do? So are people familiar with the Lorena Bobbitt case? You might have heard about this, but this, let me kind of <laughs> go over it for people who haven't. Lorena Bobbitt's case was back in Virginia in the early 90s. Um, she was married. Her husband came home at night, and she accused her husband of you know, being abusive to her throughout, you know, throughout the, you know, the years. Her husband allegedly rapes her, and she, he goes to bed. What does she do? She gets upset. <laughs> she gets upset. She goes to the kitchen and she finds a knife. And while he's asleep, he goes back into the bedroom and cuts off his private parts. Grabs his private parts, gets in the car, drives down the road, and throws them out the window. So that right there, you would say, is a crime of passion. You know, she's, you know, she's hurt. She's mad, and she just has been raped, and she cut off her, you know, husband's private parts. So you had a case like that that came into your office. Well, you know, what would you do? In this case, for Leonard and Bobbitt, guess what happened? Does anybody know what happened for the jury? Yeah, they acquitted her. Exactly. They acquitted her. So based on the facts you, alone, you would say, hey, this lady is guilty. She cuts off her, her, privates, you know, her husband's private parts. She's guilty. But what they use is mitigation, saying that you know, she was enraged, she was mentally ill, she's been hurt, she's been abused. And that's what we do as defense attorneys when we have cases like this use mitigation. So does anybody really know what mitigation is under the statute? Well, strictly speaking, it's a way to lower the punishment of someone who's already guilty. But one of the things that I've always wondered about our American system of law is how a, it, it, you seem to be hinting at it, Mr. Taylor, that at some level, a good defense attorney tries to inadvertently wink and nod incorporated into the determination of guilt or innocence in the first place. Exactly. And you, you look at all the factors and you see, like, for, for as myself, I never really ask my client if they did it or not. But what I want to know is background information about, about themselves, about the case, investigating the case, getting police reports. But under our law, under Arizona's revised statutes 13-701E, right, mitigation is defined by our statutes, evidence relevant to any aspect of the defendant's character propensities, or record, or the circumstances of the offense. So any aspect of the defendants, to so the person who's accused of the crime, their character, their propensities, and their record of any circumstance of the offense. So what does that really mean to anybody? Basically, mitigation can be anything. <laughs> anything relevant to this case. Their IQ level, their background, they grew up in a single-parent household, were they on drugs? There's a whole list of different factors that mitigation could be used for. So we're going to uncover some of the factors. So, for example, if a, if a client came into your, your office right now and they were accused of murder, say you have a 17-year-old kid, but they're accused of murder, but they're being charged as an adult, let's just kind of go around the room and just, um, shout them out. Like, what factors would you, you know, I mean, that's all you know. They come into your office. Their parents are saying, can you hire my, um, can you, can you, we're going to use you as our attorney 
for our little Johnny? What would you, what kind of mitigation would you be asking? The youthful age, you'd confirm that they were under, under the 18 years old. Correct. Um, you'd see if they were uh, perceived to be economically compelled to do what they did, if they were pressured or coerced to do what they did. Yeah, go ahead. Make sure you're representing the child over the parents. Yeah, that's one thing you definitely make sure that you represent the child. Mental health history and upbringing. Mental health history and upbringing. That's a good, and how do you find that? How, how would you find that? Um, you would look into their uh, you know, psychiatric history and doctors, et cetera, school, their school uh, teachers. Exactly. So in death penalty cases, we actually have what you call a mitigation specialist that we use. That their main and sole job is to try to go out and find anything from their childhood up until when the crime was allegedly committed. Because something that they experienced abuse when they were you know, five years old, maybe in junior high, something might have caused that person to become mentally ill or to snap to you know, commit, allegedly commit this crime. Because people just don't go out, wake up in the morning and say, I want to go out there and, and kill somebody or, or hurt somebody or slice off, you know, my husband's, you know, you know private parts. Who, I mean, no, people don't wake up like that. Most of the times, it's something, a traumatic experience that has happened to them throughout their childhood. So as defense attorneys, what we do is, you know, we dig in and we try to uncover that. But a lot of times, do you think a client's going to want to just do that when they first meet you, a total stranger? <laughs> Exactly, rapport and trust. So most of these cases, they last you know, you know, months to years. Definitely cases last you know, three, four, five years before they even get to trial. So you have that, that kind of a case. You have to build you know, you know, some trust with your client, and it takes time. And, but throughout the process, your client will start opening up to you if they trust you. And that's the thing you know, I would say is any kind of type of case you have, I don't care if it's an employment law case, criminal family, your client has to trust you in order to open up so you can get the real story behind the aspects. Because if, it go, if a case goes to trial, you as an attorney have to present these mitigating factors in front of the jury, too, to try to save your client's life in a death penalty case. And if the client doesn't trust you, they're not going to open up to you. They're not going to open up to your mitigation specialist. So those are you know, main factors. So mitigation can be fine as pretty much anything you can think of, anything that's related to the crime, anything that has caused this person that you're defending to you know, cause this crazy, you know, passionate crime that they're accused of. Any questions in regards to that? Yeah, I have one. Okay. Uh, what, um, does drunken, drunkenness or being on drugs uh, help as a mitigating factor in the act of and that's a good question. Yes and no, right? I mean, it's not an excuse for the crime. You can't use it as an excuse for the crime. But you can say that my client, you know, was from was a drug abuser, and they've been addicted to drugs, you know, throughout their whole life. They never, you know, received any help. Nobody's, you know, helped them. Please put them in rehab instead of putting them, you know, behind bars. But, but bracketing someone who's an addict. Let's say someone just gets drunk one night and then kills their spouse. Yes. Was the fact that they were drunk in that one moment? 
Is that a mitigating factor? You can use that as a mitigating factor. Yeah, you could use that. I mean, I mean, the court may see it as the aggravating factor too. So aggravations where the prosecution decides, okay, this person decided to get drunk on purpose. This person, you know, decided to do drugs on purpose, and they went out and they passionately killed this person. So that's the thing about mitigation and aggravation. I mean, you can use it on both sides, and it's and as defense attorneys, we're going to use it as this person is an addict. They're addicted, they can't help themselves. The prosecution is gonna use it as, no, this person knew what they were doing, this person intentionally did what they did, and they went out and killed that person. So that's why, as an attorney, have you seen the sentencing codes before, the criminal sentencing codes? So I have these for you. And this is pretty much you know, what we use, and this is what the judge uses when the judge decides to sentence your client. So for example, you go to trial on a case, and your client is looking at, say for example, we can turn to page six when you get the handout. On page six, you see where it says second degree murder. Is everybody there? And you see um, 16 calendar years with a possible increase of 25 calendar years, right? With a decrease of 10 calendar years. So basically, if, you, that, if that's your range, say you have a case and you, you do a deal with the prosecutor and you say, okay, instead of doing death penalty, say you're doing you know, first-degree murder, let's play it down to a, a range of 10 years minimum, 16 years in the middle, 25 years maximum. Under the law, the judge has to start at the middle range, the presumptive term. Say the presumptive term is 16. That's under the law. The prosecutor is going to use aggravating factors to get, them, get that person up to above 16, maybe 22, 24, up to 25 if they want to. As a defense attorney, we're trying to get them the least amount of time, and if our range is from 10 to 25, how do we get them down there? It's by using mitigation. It's by telling the judge, no, this is not an excuse. It's, it's real life here. This is person has been abused as a child, and we put on evidence. This person has a drug addiction. We put on evidence. So we're not trying to put excuses up there, but we're trying to show this is the reason why paint the full picture of why we are here today in the courtroom, you know, under the law, and this is why my client's being sentenced. Not because they just went out there and intentionally tried to hurt somebody because of these mitigating factors. So we're going to play a little role right now where I'm going to get everybody involved. And pretend you have a case, right, and you, you're watching the news, and you see a young man, you hear the story about a young man who is in college, and he's going to his girlfriend's house. He's going to surprise his girlfriend on his birthday. And he goes to the store, and he buys a rose for her. He drives to her house. He's going to deliver the rose on his birthday to her. And while he's driving up to her, her house, she sees the captain of the baseball team kissing her passionately outside. They're making out. And he gets mad. And he grabs a weapon in his car. Say it's a knife he has in his car. And he goes up to his girlfriend, and he goes up to this guy and says, well, you know, why are you kissing? I mean, here's your birthday. I'm going to give you a rose. And he laughs at her, like, ha, 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 who cares? And he just passionately just kills him. And this is your case. This person goes into your office, and they say, you know what? They, they, they were arrested, they bonded out, and now they're in your office. You, you hear the facts, right? Everybody understands the facts? You know, boyfriend goes and sees his girlfriend, he, 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 he runs up and sees his girlfriend kissing the captain of the baseball team, and he gets, grabs a knife and, and kills her. What do you do now? Uncover the mitigation. 
what kind of questions do you ask him in order to try to you know, resolve the case or? Your father did your father routinely hit you as a child? Okay. Um, are there mental health problems in your background that you may even disagree with, but that others have uh, nonetheless diagnosed you with in order to solve the question? Yes, mental health. So always dig into the mental health. That's one of the key factors. Always go into the mental health. When you do mitigation, always dig in, get your client evaluated by an independent um, doctor to dig in and just ask questions. Is there a history of betrayal in your, in your mm -hmm. life? That's great. Has this happened to you before? Have you been hurt by prior betrayals and you're trying to prevent the cognitive confrontation with yet another betrayal? Yeah, have you been betrayed before in your life? Say, for example, exactly. Say his girlfriend has broken up with him you know, two or three times. Say his girlfriend has cheated on him, and he's never gotten over that. Say his parents, say his dad cheated on his mom with his wife, or vice versa, his mom cheated on his dad. That right there could have some sort of traumatic experience in his head. Did he have a prior relationship with the baseball captain? That's, that's, that's excellent. Did he have a prior relationship with the baseball captain? Did he know this person? Or was it just a stranger to him? What else happened that day? What happened on the way there? What happened the day before? Was there something behind the road? Was your mask going to marry you? Were you anticipating spending the rest of your life with this person? Go on. Exactly. I mean, I mean, if there was a relationship beforehand. He say he woke up and had a bad day. We need to find out the background information to figure out what, like, why would he just grab a knife and just stab him just because he sees his girlfriend? And maybe to know if it was premeditated or not, you'd want to know was he already aware prior to that moment that she was cheating on him? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You want to know if it's premeditation. You want to why? know. Go ahead. Why did he have the knife in the car? <laughs> why he had the knife oh. in the car in the first place? Exactly, and that goes to premeditation. You know, was do you also know a good civil lawyer? Because considering you killed the captain of the baseball team, there's probably going to be a suit coming from his family, so be prepared. Yes, exactly too. No, right, exactly. Yeah, no, it's a wrongful death suit. So from the civil side, of the, probably going after him and his family to get you know money on the on the on the, on the civil side. So those are like you know excellent. Anything else? But those are excellent, you know, questions that you want to ask your client. How Go ahead. This one? You know, a girlfriend, however much a girlfriend is loved, it's not the same status as a wife. And so why is it that you're passionate enough to kill her, but not passionate enough to marry yet? <laughs> that's, that's very deep right there. <laughs> you're passionate enough to kill her, but you're not passionate enough to marry her? So, and that's, and that's, and that's, I mean, that goes into, like, like, what's his psyche? And how long was the relationship? Was it just some, you know, a woman or a girl that he met and he's been dating her for only two, three months? Or this is somebody he's dated, you know, all throughout high school, college, four or five years? So these are all factors you want to find. And then, like I mentioned before, a lot of times your client is not going to trust you that well when you first meet them. They might tell you a little bit, but throughout the case and the course, that's when you build that trust, and the, uh, more and more stories will come out in this. So that's, that's basically it. So whenever you have a case like this, you know, always uncover the mitigation. Use the sentencing code so you'll know what range your sentence is, is um, located based on your, your, um, your crime. And if you look on page one, there's all types of categories from class two, class three, class four, class five, class six, 
type felonies. So this is the range that the judge will have if you have a class two, class three, four, five, or six felony. So once you know the range, you need to uncover um, you know, the mitigation. So that way, you know, if you go to trial and you win, or you get the case dismissed, that's great. But if you're in that category where your client pleads guilty to an offense, or goes to trial and you lose, and you're in front of the judge, you need to convince that judge, or in death penalty cases, that jury, to save the client's life based upon the mitigating factors. Thank you. Okay, so we have uh, 15 minutes left for folks who want to contribute other things they know about this stuff or ask questions uh, about, about Jewish law, about U.S. law. Yes? I see that rabbinically under the oral law, the death penalty was effectively interpreted out of Jewish practice. But factually, historically speaking, what, what happened to be the punishment for one who did nonetheless commit a murder? Um, right. Okay. So, um, so, so it's a great question. So, in general, as you know, for uh, almost the entirety of Jewish uh, history, at least the two, last two thousand years, um, we didn't have sovereignty, and so generally, crimes were handled by uh, whatever country Jews lived in. Um, the Romans, you know, the Romans is a classical case, or or. Um, uh, and actually, well, actually, one of the fascinating cases that Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, the 20th century um, Orthodox legal authority in New York, uh, said that we trust and rely upon the American procedural justice as just, but not punitive justice as just. And thus, there was a prohibition of turning in Jews to secular authorities. There, right, there, there, there's an old prohibition against turning in Jews to secular authorities because they will, because of anti-Semitism, they will punish them differently and more harshly, and so you can't turn them in. Um, and so, uh, and so, the, the, what, what, so what's the troubling case that emerges with today that we see in the Catholic Church and in parts of ultra-orthodoxy? Child abuse. Do you turn in the priest? Do you turn in the rabbi hmm. who's been doing this stuff, right? And you know, uh, virtually all of us agree that yes, you turn them in. Um, but there's still some folks hanging on to saying that we shouldn't turn these people in to these authorities. Um, but, uh, but essentially what he was arguing there is that, is that we live in a, in a country where the procedural justice, of course, makes mistakes, um, but essentially can be relied upon as having a just process. But punitive justice is not, criminal justice is not reliable. Why? Because American law will punish much more harshly than Jewish law. Now, probably few to none of us in the room want to return towards corporeal punishment, um, of flogging. Um, but one could argue that being flogged 39 times over the course of five minutes <laughs> is a much, much, much less harsh punishment than 40 years in jail, right? Um, and that maybe it's more just to, to whip someone um, for five minutes than, than, uh, than, than to, put them in, to put them in prison. So, 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 so circling back, so, 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 so that was part of, his, part of his argument there. And so... Um, um, most agree today that we should engage the, the secular courts. But going back to your initial question, so one of the punishments that we did see that was used was called kippah. There is no prison in Jewish law, and so prison is more harsh than the normal punishments that would be given. But kippah was sort of a detainment, a, a detention that was used. Um, but essentially, murder crimes like this generally led, uh, meant excommunication. Um, if you were excommunicated from the Jewish community, and you did not convert to another uh, religion's uh, uh, faith, you were in no, no person's land. <laughs> you, were, you lived nowhere. You were, you were done, right? Um, if, you're not, if you didn't convert to Islam or to Christianity and you weren't accepted in the Jewish community. So at the very least, there was that. 
Um, but it's true, we don't have a track record of the, of the, of the death penalty being used. Of course, it was used once in Israel. What's the case? Eichmann. The Eichmann trial. There's a lot to say about the Eichmann trial. We won't go there now. Uh, but yeah, you had a follow-up thought or question. Oh, it was that. You were addressing it. So before we lost sovereignty, it might have been punished through excommunication. And then once, once we lost sovereignty, it was simply handled by civil general authorities. Uh, exactly. That, that there may have been cases um, where, um, where one would be turned over to secular authorities, um, or they may have been hesitant to um, and, uh, yeah, and excommunicated that person. Um, but I'm not aware of, of, of precedent in Talmudically or, or, or halakhic literature of, of a court uh, actually uh, carrying out murder. Actually, one of the, one of the arguments um, as to why it's clear that the Jews didn't kill Jesus is because in all the theoretical models of, uh, of capital punishment, that's, uh, you know, that's not one of them. Um, uh, crucifixion uh, and not being one of them. Um, there's lots of other things to say about that complicated issue. Um, but, um, uh, but the Romans did periodically carry out uh, Jewish justice for them uh, in, in cases like that, in cases where people turned in Jews to the Romans, uh, in which case the Jews are then blamed for that death. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, is that, is, that, is that helpful at all? It is. Yeah, yeah. Actually, another classic case, something we see today happening... Um, uh, this actually, if we do if we do a divorce law case, I'd love to do a divorce case with you. But one of the things we <laughs> see actually that intersects with this mitigating factor is um, that a person ha a, a a Jewish man has to give a get has to give a divorce document of their own volition. They can't be forced. So what does it mean to force? So every year or two, you see in the New York Times a case where the rabbis uh, get one of these pick up one of these get refusers and beat him up until he gives it. So they say, what do you mean beat him up? Well, isn't that forcing him? Or if you put him in jail until he's willing to give the divorce document, isn't that forcing? They say, no, his inner, his inner de desire, his inner truth is <laughs> to give it, and we're merely pulling out his inner, deepest inner desire and inner truth. So we're not forcing him, we're merely exposing his deeper desire <laughs> that's in there. And so that's another case where the rabbis are carrying out justice in their own, uh, by their own means. Rabbi, are you implying that the Jews turned over Jesus to be crucified? Oh, no, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not. Um, uh, thank you for <laughs> pointing that out. Um, there, there is, uh, there is uh, 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 clear discomfort among the rabbinic community around some of the trends uh, that are emerging uh, with Jesus and his practices, but it's also very clear that Christianity doesn't emerge until Paul well after Jesus uh, he, that he wasn't constructing religion himself as a rabbinic Jew, although he had critiques of the rabbinic establishment. Um, and um, there were many different factions that emerged at that time. But uh, it is not my understanding of history, and I'm curious of other views, um, that the Jews in any way were complicit um, in, uh, in, in, in what happened with Jesus and his death. Uh, yes, Craig. Okay. Uh, I've got two questions. One is purely theoretical, and one is relevantly practical. <laughs> Who were the questions for? <laughs> I'm sorry? Who, who are you asking here? You. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the purely theoretical question is, there were other tribal societies, right. and this issue of crimes obviously arose in them. And generally, perhaps generally is the wrong word, there did occur in some of those societies uh, the notion of blood price. So, even, even though the families enacted justice, right. just like you've described, yeah. 
what the family did was take a hostage or whatever and demand a blood price for mm -hmm. the crime mm -hmm. for returning the hostage or whatever. Um, that, that is, they demanded justice, but the justice they demanded was not death. Okay, why is, that, why is Jewish society different in that respect? That's question number one. Question number two is, um, oh, so, I'm sorry, so they took hostage and, and, and they wouldn't release the hostage I, until, I, I'm until just, what? I'm just giving you an example. Yeah, but what, what's, the, what's in return for the hostage? The, the person, the, the murder. The blood price for the murder. Okay. So well, they made a monetary price. Right. Okay, got it. It was a monetary got price. It, got so it, got it, okay. You, you, demanded, you demanded justice, but right. the justice was that you pay the relatives a right. certain amount. Okay. Um, question number two is, this notion of Shotah? Shotah. Shotah? Yep. Okay. Um, I, I'm a little concerned, and I've now given away the question, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I see a trend <laughs> in a whole bunch of CLEs, I've gone to recently, uh -huh. of trying to say, well, look, none of us are really in touch with the world. Uh, and, and the gorilla mm -hmm. movie. Huh. Is, is one such example, you know. We focus in, we see our part of the world, but the world out there in general we don't see, wow. and therefore, in some sense, none of us can ever be responsible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's a Jewish response to that? Because <laughs> I find that doctrine, I, I find there is evidence for that doctrine, and certainly there's evidence that we focus in, perhaps excessively at times. Right. Uh, but is that a form of insanity? Great, great. Okay, so I'd love to hear others' thoughts on this as well. So to circle back to this, certainly under Jewish law, as you implied, it would be prohibited to take a hostage for a blood price. Right. Um, and uh, the only permission that is actually given is this Goel Hadam, this redeemer of blood. Uh, not in any modern sense. That was only in a biblical society. And, you know, part of this, it's worth circling back here, that part of what is happening Right, Maimonides, or the Rambam, explains how do we have this problem of a Torah that we may, to more or less degrees, believe in or, ascri or ascribe to its morality, and yet understand that it will have moral deficiencies for our age. And the Maimonides says that revelation occurs within a particular context that advances progress in that context, but that the oral tradition is put in place so it can continue to evolve. So what's a classic example? It would have been way too radical for the Torah to abolish slavery, right? It, it, it sadly didn't happen in this country until 116 years ago, whatever the case is, right? But it made it impossible to mistreat a slave within that context 3,300 years ago. So we would have said, this is immoral. How does it allow slavery? Well, everyone allowed slavery. So there's slavery at that time, but it makes it, you can't hit your slave. If, if they run away, you can't return that slave. What were you gonna say? Yeah, that you have that you pay you pay reparations, you pay uh, reparations um, after they leave. Um, so various things, and so or and, and so the goal of that might be another one. This tribal justice. We say today, my goodness, we wouldn't allow this to happen. Say so, okay, look in the biblical tribal society, and this is moving it forward. Or another case is um, that the code of Hammurabi that existed just before the Torah. Um, if you hit a, a slave, it's a it, it's a monetary crime. Right? because they're not a life. Right? The Bible comes and says, 
No, that's a life. It's true we didn't abolish slavery, but that's a capital crime if you kill a slave. Um, so, um, so too here, so the Goa Hadam is this limited this space where they allow for this tribal justice. But taking someone hostage uh, would, would certainly be a problem uh, for the blood price. Uh, and actually, one of the interesting legal cases that emerges, and, uh, do folks remember Gilad Shalit? Gilad Shalit. So the case emerges where Palestinians take, a, uh, take an Israeli hostage. And the question is, how many um, Palestinian prisoners should the Israeli government release in order to get that one back? Actually, there's a case, uh, a troubling case right now, and I, I'm uh, hesitant to fully attribute it to racism, um, but it, I do have questions about it, where there is a Ethiopian black Israeli who is captured by, Ham by Hamas right now in Gaza for the last two years. How come none of us know his name? Like Gilad Shalit. Well, he wasn't white and Ashkenazi, right? But so where's the talk about it? So there's various factors. It's a complicated case. They wanted to keep it quiet because they thought they could get a better deal and things like that. But why is it we don't know his name the way Gilad Shalit's name was known? Okay, so, so look into that case. If you want to talk about that, I'd be happy to talk about that. But in any case, how many, this was very common, how many, how much should, should you pay to get back, I know I'm, I'm deviating from your original question. How much, how much should you pay or how many, how many prisoners give back to rescue a, a human life? And there's a famous case of a rabbi who was held hostage who said, mm. give no one. Because what's the tension there? The tension is one life is worth a world. You should give anything back to get them. On the other cases, the tension is they're gonna take more hostages so that they can get more in return. They'll continue to do this. So what is the limit? The rabbis are constantly putting a value on human life in a way that will, will, will not lead to more hostage situations. So this one rabbi said, leave me, do not save me, even though you think there's an obligation, because they're going to take too much, right? They'll take a toll. And they'll keep doing it. They'll keep doing this kind of thing, exactly. So, okay, so, so that's my reflection on your first thing. The second thing on this responsibility, I think this is where Jewish law is very interesting. That it's neither an absolutist tradition nor a relativistic tradition, where it says... Um, we only look at the objective crime itself, absence of mitigating factors, various mitigating factors. As we saw, there's you know, tons of mitigating factors in Jewish law. Um, and yet, um, also, um, that there is this desire to hold up free will and responsibility. And once you get to this point of, uh, of, uh, of having to balance that tension, um, uh, it, it becomes very difficult. And so I think uh, that's absolutely right. Now, the shota is a very limited category of very particular mental illness. And we're going to stop here in just two minutes, um, where um, the, the, the person is in the Talmud uh, seen walking around at night in graveyards. That's one of the cases. There's all these signs of abnormal behavior that no one would do unless they had mental illness. And if they have abnormal behavior on a consistent basis, we understand them to be in a separate category. Um, but, but there is still responsibility. So I actually, I think here's another case where uh, it'll sound uh, barbaric to return to this form of justice, but it may be better than what we have today. So for certain monetary crimes, um, do we believe white-collar crime should be, uh, lead to imprisonment? Or do we believe it should lead towards solving problems? Should Bernie Madoff just rot in prison? Or should he be used to aid society in some ways? I don't know the answer to that. I don't propose to know the answer to that. But here's the way the Bible addressed that. It was called slavery or indentured servitude. If you um, had a debt that you owed, um, we don't just want to imprison you. We want you to work for that person that you owe the debt until that debt is paid off. 
right, indentured servitude. So I would propose, perhaps as, a, as an alternative to incarceration, we might have some form of, uh, of work program where one has to pay back that debt. Um, so, uh, so I believe responsibility is the key thing they're, they're trying to navigate. One, that it's a just punishment, for, for, um, but two, that responsibility is taken uh, both for the factors of deterrence, for the factors of, 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 um, of paying back uh, a form of debt that is owed, um, the needs of the victims, um, and the needs of character development was another one also as well. So I think we're, um, we're going to pause here to end right on time. We uh, want to thank very much Mr. Mr. Taylor for his uh, thank you. fascinating <laughs> presentation. Um, <laughs> Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much. For